Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. Tonight on The Readout. I think about her brother and sister who both watched their parents be murdered on October 7th. And Abigail coming home for them, for the grandparents, for the family, for all of us, is, is that one hope to have her back, embrace her. Her birthday is on Friday. She's turning four. The great aunt of young Abigail Moradon is just one of the countless family members desperately hoping that their loved one is among the hostages expected to be freed soon by Hamas. But the release will not be happening as soon as everyone hoped. Also tonight, Elon Musk is having trouble facing the truth about the rampant anti-Semitic content on his website, formerly known as Twitter. He's suing Media Matters for exposing that fact to advertisers. And the president of that organization will join me. Plus, with Republican Speaker Mike Johnson likely to push for a national abortion ban, abortion rights activists are stepping up the pressure, seeking to enshrine a woman's right to choose in the constitutions of several more states. But we begin tonight with overwhelming anticipation for the Israeli and Palestinian families who may reunite with their loved ones in the coming days. Israel and Hamas have agreed to a breakthrough deal to release 50 women and children who were kidnapped and held in Gaza. The plan will also include the release of 150 Palestinians from Israeli jails. Initial reports said hostages held by Hamas could be released as soon as tomorrow morning. But late today, the Israeli government announced that the release will not take place before Friday. It's another devastating blow for the families. What we do know about the deal is that it will allow humanitarian aid and fuel to enter Gaza. The deal also includes an option to extend the pause in fighting in exchange for 10 Israeli hostages per day and a proportionate release of Palestinians. Today, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu addressed his country for the first time since the Israeli parliament approved the deal last night. He said the Red Cross will be allowed to see and treat the remaining hostages. He also vowed that Israel's military campaign will continue until Hamas is dismantled. The deal comes as the debate over the Hamas attack rages on within Israel. According to a poll by the Hebrew-language Mariv newspaper, 80% of Israelis believe Prime Minister Netanyahu must take responsibility for the security failures exposed by the attack, and his approval approval ratings have plummeted. Beyond Israel's border, a wider debate looms over the humanitarian consequences of Bibi's war. Netanyahu is Israel's longest-serving prime minister. He was first elected as a right-wing Likud party candidate in 1996. He then returned to power in 2009 and has been prime minister for 13 of the past 14 years, notably for most of the time Hamas has been in charge of Gaza. For someone whose current mission in life is to eradicate Hamas, Bibi has actually done a lot to prop up the militant group. It may sound like a head scratcher until you remember that his prime directive 
has always been a vehement opposition to a two-state solution. Bolstering Hamas rule in Gaza helped undermine the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank. Divide and conquer was the plan, as well as empowering Israeli settlers in the occupied West Bank and the far right, and in some cases, racist religious parties currently in his governing coalition. That's to say nothing of his current legal problems, pending indictments against him and his wife for corruption, and his push to essentially take control of Israel's Supreme Court. And if all of that sounds Trumpily familiar, well, Haaretz, an Israeli newspaper, has described Netanyahu's strategies this way, quote, For over a decade, Netanyahu has lent a hand in various ways to the growing military and political power of Hamas. Netanyahu is the one who turned Hamas from a terror organization with few resources into a semi-state body, releasing Palestinian prisoners, allowing cash transfers, with the knowledge that much of the material will be designated for terrorism. All of these developments created symbiosis between the flowering of fundamentalist terrorism and the preservation of Netanyahu's rule. Joining me now is Eamon Mohedin, host of Eamon on MSNBC, and he covered the Israeli-Palestinian conflict as a foreign correspondent. Will Bunch, columnist for the Philadelphia Inquirer, and Dr. Tanya Haj Hassan, pediatric intensive care and humanitarian physician with Doctors Without Borders. She is co-founder of the social media platform Gaza Medic Voices. Thank you both for being here. Dr. Taj, uh, Dr. Haj Hassan, I want to start with you just to get your reaction to this deal that will allow the Red Cross to go in and see um, uh, Israeli and other hostages and will also allow humanitarian groups to begin operating and delivering fuel and medical supplies into Gaza. Give us your take on this deal that hasn't happened yet, but that seems to be uh, in the works. You know, I've been saying since day one that this is one of the worst humanitarian catastrophes that uh, myself and many in the humanitarian sector have seen. Um, and they, it, it just gets worse. I think we're at a point right now where humanitarian need, uh, aid is so desperately needed. Uh, and we're still negotiating, letting in drops uh, of what is needed, uh, uh, what is needed across the Gaza Strip. Um, I will welcome any humanitarian aid, but what has what we've seen on the ground so far uh, has has been nominal. has hasn't been anywhere near what is needed. Winter is coming. There are 1.5 million inter internally displaced people within the Gaza Strip, and we can talk at some point about the injured. But I'm I'm at the moment I'm I'm just talking about those who are displaced with no access to clean water suffering from starvation, from all the illnesses and outbreaks that we're starting to see as a result of displacement, poor sanitary conditions and waterborne diseases. So any amount of aid is, is, is welcome, but what is needed is a ceasefire so that we can have unhindered humanitarian aid going into the Gaza Strip. I think there needs to be medical checks, of course, on the hostages, but also on the entire civilian population in the Gaza Strip, of which we know uh, uh, at this point, so 20,000 are, are, are injured and in need of urgent medical attention. Uh, let me go to you, Eamon, because it, it seems to me, Daniel Levy uh, made the point yesterday, uh, and I think it's a, smart, it's a smart point, that this is a deal that 
uh, Bibi Netanyahu had to make. He's facing increasing opposition to himself inside of his own country, protests, people marching against him, including families of some of these hostages. The humanitarian catastrophe uh, that Dr. Hachasan just described is exploding protests around the world. There's a lot of pressure, and I, I assume the Biden administration feels some pressure since, you know, the U.S. is owning some of this as well. Talk about kind of the imperatives for him to have to make this kind of deal and what it means for him politically, because it seems to me that the more hostages that come out, um, particularly as all the Israeli citizen hostages come out, there's no deal for the other nationalities hostages. There's no more incentive to stop the bombardment. Yeah. And, and look, you know, honestly, uh, we have known about an offer to release the hostages through negotiations, through mediation, really from almost the first couple of days of this war. I mean, there was a cell that was created immediately after October 7th to begin the process of trying to diplomatically release these hostages. So it was very early on that the Israeli government was presented with what many believe were two fundamentally opposite objectives. One, release the hostages to destroy Hamas, as they stated. Those those two almost could not have happened in tangent by military force alone. And so from day one, the prime minister of Israel found himself in a situation where a lot of critics were saying, you are ultimately going to get to this point. Yes, the military um, the military operation could strengthen your hand in negotiation. It could lessen the demands of Hamas. But ultimately, in order to secure the release of 200 plus hostages in the middle of 2.2 million people that you don't know where they are, you are going to have to rely on negotiations to get them. Now, he has found himself um, in somewhat of a dead end road. 5,000 children dead, 13,000, 14,000 Palestinians killed overall, 46 percent of the population um, either displaced or have their residents and buildings destroyed. The international pressure is mounting, the political pressure in Israel is mounting, the leaders of the security services, the IDF, the ISA, the Mossad, the Shin Beit, everybody telling him, you have to release the hostages through negotiations plus the families. So he ultimately came to this conclusion that the safest way to do it, and perhaps the easiest way to do it, is through diplomacy. And Hamas had demonstrated early on in this process, um, by releasing those two Americans and those two elderly Israeli women, that they were prepared to release the hostages through diplomacy. So we are back to where we could have been without the casualties, without the loss of life on the Palestinian side, and with a much better success rate of releasing all the hostages uh, than where, where, where we could have been earlier on than where we are today. Let me ask you a follow-up question, Eamon, because uh, we know that of the hostages that are there, we don't know precise numbers of nationalities, but there are a substantial number of migrant workers who work in Israel, um, who come from places like Thailand and India and the Philippines, who are among the hostages. According to NBC News, the latest guidance that we've gotten, this negotiation is only for Israeli citizen and dual national hostages, mainly American. Is there any reporting on whether the governments of these other countries, and some of them are British nationals, but they are uh, of Indian extraction, et cetera, are other governments having separate negotiations to get their people out? Because again, once the Israeli nationals are out, the question is, is there an incentive to stop the bombardment of Gaza? Because the continued bombardment not only obviously creates a humanitarian crisis, it creates a crisis for those hostages, too. 
It, it certainly does. And I think the way to kind of approach this is to think of the hostages in a few different uh, categories. Um, and let's say uh, what we do know is close to 70 are Israeli soldiers. Those 70 Israeli soldiers, Hamas has made clear that they are not going to release under any condition until or unless it is through diplomacy or mediation that requires a complete end of the hostilities. So even if we release all of the Israeli uh, hostages through mediations, the Qatari government has said that it is open to negotiating with any government that wants to get its citizens released. And we know that, for example, uh, the leaders, the prime minister of, of Thailand has met with the Qatari prime minister to figure out what they can do to help release those uh, held captive by Hamas in Gaza. For its part, Hamas has said clearly that they do not want civilians. They do not want women and children and foreign workers, and they are prepared to release them. But their conditions for releasing them require the yeah. end of hostility so that they can consolidate these hostages, which they say till this day, not all of them are under their control. Some of them have been taken by other militant groups and other Palestinian factions. Uh, let me go to you, Will Bunch, uh, because this is all it, it's all very stressful, I think, for everyone. But you wrote a couple of columns, I think, that are important for us to really focus again on Bibi Netanyahu himself. You've called him a cautionary tale for Americans. Please explain. Well, exactly. I mean, you mentioned in your introduction some of the parallels to Donald Trump and um, uh, the fact that he's under criminal indictment, just as, as Donald Trump is, uh, is important because. Uh, a lot of Israeli citizens feel that his actions, both before October 7th and maybe to some extent after October 7th, have been motivated by his efforts to, you know, stay out of jail, put off these corruption charges. Um, you know, opinion polls in Israel have shown uh, the Israeli people, by and large, are tired of his uh, leadership. Um, you know, uh, the polls I've seen, uh, it's divided between people who want him to leave as prime minister right now and people who are willing to let him finish out this war and then want him to go immediately after. So um, it's interesting. And you have to wonder, you know, today in announcing this deal, he said, you know, once we finish these exchanges, the war is back on. And you just have to wonder, again, how much of this is self-preservation. And um, yeah, I mean, one reason it's funny because I'm a, I'm actually a domestic columnist, but I've been writing about this because I do think he's a cautionary tale for electing Donald Trump. Um, uh, not just the legal parallels, which are uh, pretty remarkable, but also uh, just to form his government, uh, he took a sharp right turn, which, you know, and he's uh, adopted uh, some really extreme ministers, the ones you've heard making some of these comments about reducing uh, Gaza to rubble. Uh, and, and, you know, here, here, here with Donald Trump in the U.S., he also sees uh, taking a far right turn as his path to returning to the presidency. Uh, uh, you know, uh, some of the some of these extreme people like Stephen Miller that he's surrounding with and and some of his extreme ideas. Uh, you know, um, history in the 20th century has shown that far right authoritarians uh, have very militaristic policies and their policies end up in in war. And I think that's something that American voters should look at, look at what's happened with Netanyahu and think about what it might mean returning Donald Trump to the White House. Uh, I appreciate all of you being here. I wish we had more time, but we, we, we are uh, out of time. Eamon Mohedin, Will Bunch, Dr. Tanya Haj Hassan. Very illuminating conversation. Thank you all very, very much.
Uh, and before we go to the break, we are following today's developing story from Niagara Falls, where earlier today a car crashed and exploded at a U.S.-Canada border checkpoint. Authorities say two people in the car were killed. NBC News obtained exclusive video of the car appearing to be traveling at high speed, hitting a median and going airborne. Late today, New York Governor Kathy Hochul said there is no indication, no indication of a terrorist attack at this time. And up next on The Readout, Elon Musk embarks on a new money-losing venture with a lawsuit accusing Media Matters of manipulating his platform to produce a report that led to an exodus of advertisers. Media Matters president Angelo Carasoni joins me when The Readout continues. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. On Monday, Elon Musk delivered his much-promised thermonuclear lawsuit against Media Matters for America, a nonprofit known for its criticism of conservative outlets and media figures. Musk, the self-proclaimed free speech absolutist, was triggered by a Media Matters report that said that the social media company he owns, X, the former Twitter, wasn't doing much to control ad placements next to anti-Semitic rhetoric. X had assured the public that it had introduced safety precautions that would, safety protections that would prevent ads from appearing next to harmful content. Last week, one of their journalists reported that ads for media companies were being placed alongside memes portraying Nazism as a spiritual awakening, and uh, Hitler quotes. To be clear, Media Matters did not invent the anti-Semitic tweets, and they didn't falsely place the images side by side. They just pointed out that this was happening. Shortly after the Media Matters report came out, companies like IBM, Lionsgate, Comcast, our parent company, Apple, and Disney, among others, decided to pause their advertising on X-Twitter. According to data from a market intelligence firm, those companies represent 7% of X's U.S. ad revenue this year. The exodus came at the same time that Musk was promoting and agreeing with someone who was pushing the notion that Jewish people support white genocide. In the Texas-based lawsuit, X claims that Media Matters manipulated the X algorithm by following 30 accounts made up of only anti-Semitic users and large companies, 
and did so by undertaking excessive scrolling and refreshing. Musk's lawsuit was cheered by right-wing politicians like right-wing Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton, you know, the guy who was impeached and later acquitted for abuse of power, bribery, and hooking his mistress up with a gig in Austin so that he could meet her surreptitiously. That bastion of ethical behavior said that he would examine the issue closely to ensure that the public has not been deceived by the schemes of radical left-wing organizations who would like nothing more than to limit freedom by reducing participation in the public square. Apparently, the Attorney General of Missouri will do the same. Angelo Carasoni, the president and CEO of Media Matters, tweeted, This is a frivolous lawsuit meant to bully X's critics into silence. Media Matters stands behind its reporting and look forward to winning in court. Meanwhile, the social media platform remains a welcoming space for anti-Semitism, racism, Islamophobia, transphobia, homophobia, misogyny, you name it. While Musk personally decides, seemingly randomly, what words, phrases, and ideas he will ban that day. It's almost as if his interpretation of freedom of speech is letting the absolute worst people and bots say whatever they want, as long as Elon agrees with it. Joining me now is Angelo Carasoni, president and CEO of Media Matters, Ben Collins, NBC News senior reporter. Angelo, I want to start with you. What is excessive scrolling and was Media Matters excessively scrolling and faking the uh, symmetry or the, 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 the close association uh, of content with Nazi stuff? I think that, that they're trying to describe just the general use of Twitter. Uh, you know, it's like, that's what you do on Twitter. You look at your feed uh, and then it, it refreshes. Um, and that's sort of, it's just like, you know, they use the word manipulate the, manipulate the public, but even their own statements acknowledge that everything that we, that we reported was completely accurate. So, you know, that's what I think they mean by it. They're just trying to make it sound dastardly. And, you know, in terms of the more broad issue here, the thing I would just point out is that this was one of many reports and we're not the only people to have this phenomenon. We've been pushing on this issue specifically on pro-Nazi and sort of Hitler content since August. And X has been engaging, saying, hey, you know, we're going to fix this. We're, we're ramping up our brand safety stuff. They're the ones making claims that they are prevent or supposed to be preventing ads from running alongside adjacent to this kind of extremist content. So it, it doesn't really matter how we used it, how many times we hit refresh. If, if Ultimately, the ads shouldn't be there in the first place because that's the standard that they're setting. And it shows that they're not doing the very thing they're saying. And that's that's what the report was designed to illustrate. Uh, and Ben, you are, uh, you know, you, you check Twitter so that we don't have to, like the, I, I, as I describe your, your job. I mean, you probably do a lot of excessive scrolling. Um, <laughs> because I can say that just as a, a former user who's jumped off the platform because of the increasing sort of Nazi vibe of it, which it used to be in the early days, 2008, 2009, when I first got on, it was awful. And then it got awful again. And a lot of people just don't want to use it anymore. Number one is, is the phenomenon of increasing sort of Nazi-like and anti-Semitic content, is that something in your reporting that's real. Um, and number two, how is it that, that advertisers are only now deciding to get off the platform? It surprised me that it just happened only recently. I have no idea why it took so long, but I will say it is absolutely real. And I will say also that um, there's a reason you have to excessively scroll to do that. And I mean that technologically. Uh, Elon set a precedent where looking under the hood of Twitter uh, was turned off effectively. There's a thing called API access, where we can basically look at um, the fundamentals, the, the technological, the actual amount of stuff that's going through Twitter at any given moment. Researchers used to be able to look at this stuff, but when, when Elon bought it, for this reason, 
Um, he made it so you can no longer see behind the scenes like that. And a lot of places like Facebook sort of followed their lead. They, the best practices for actually studying what's happening on social media have been turned off. And that's because of the pressure campaign that Elon Musk and Republican lawmakers have been putting on for years and years. So Elon effectively turned off the ability to study the Internet and to study Twitter and to study the public conversation. And then afterwards said, why are you scrolling so excessively to find all of these ads? It's because that's the only way to do journalism on that platform right now. What is Linda Yaccarino, who used to work for NBC Universal, I should add, and left here to go and work there and supposedly to increase their ad revenue, which had been tanking anyway? I think some of the numbers is that it, it goes down. Here's the ad sales declines. Reuters reported that uh, X's ad revenue has declined at least 55 percent year over year every month since uh, Elon Musk took it over. What has she told employees internally and what is she saying about this? She told employees to start looking around for new uh, kinds of revenue because they're running out of money too fast. And also, you know, they have uh, w- when some of these brands are still on and they got re-onboarded from last time that there was a advertiser boycott. One of them was like Visa and Visa spent ten dollars, not like ten thousand dollars, like ten dollars. So this place is hemorrhaging cash. Now, are they going to be able to survive this? I don't really know. Elon wants to run this as a bare bones operation. But I will say the much more, the much scarier part of all this is the preview, the political playbook that's being created here by Elon Musk and the far right. They are going to these Republican AGs and saying, file these frivolous suits. Go after the speech of people that we don't like. Do it on our behalf, even though there's no case here, even though it's ridiculous. That's the preview of 2025. If Trump gets back in office, that's what he wants to do on a state by state level. He wants to go after uh, critics of their own under the guise, hilariously, of free speech. Uh, I just want people to be aware that if you think you're protected in this environment, the second you start disagreeing with somebody who has too much money, you're not going to be able to do that anymore. I will also note that, uh, according to Semaphore, uh, Twitter has hired or Yaccarino has hired her son who's been tasked with outreach to Republican digital advertising firms and spenders. Just want to throw that out there. Uh, uh, let me go back to you, Angelo. This is what ex-Twitter says they want in this lawsuit. Actual and consequential damages caused by the defendant's misconduct, including but not limited to all general and special damages. I don't know what that means. A preliminary and permanent injunction ordering Media Matters to immediately take down and otherwise remove the article talking about what's uh, in their ads uh, from websites and social media accounts. Excess cost and attorney's fees and also further relief that the court deems proper. Your response to that, uh, those demands? I mean, we reported something that was accurate that they even acknowledged. So so I really don't understand it. This is like getting mad at a mirror or trying to break a mirror because you don't like the reflection. And that's really what's happening here. And I mean, that's to me, you know, I think we should get a thank you. Because if you look back at the totality of our reporting, they've either had to respond to it or take action on it. We've been doing the work, just like other reporters out there. Uh, that the brand safety and trust team used to do at Twitter, that, ex, that that Elon Musk gutted when he took it over in order to actually help it turn into the increasing cesspool of toxicity and extremism that it is. So, I mean, frankly, I, I don't see the, you know, the, the point here at all, except to do nothing more than silence us. And I think what Ben said is right, and I want to echo it. This is a preview. This is a keyhole view to the future, because it's not just that they enlisted AGs. It's also where they're suing us, how they're proceeding here, and enlisting and marshalling all the forces, both criminal and civil to try to not just shut us down, but also intimidate us going forward or make it significantly more difficult for us to do our job. And that's that's not going to be limited to just us, to be honest. 
Yeah, I agree. I think all journalists should take, uh, pay attention to it. Ben, if you could just briefly explain. Oh, I think uh, I do. Oh, you're unfrozen. Uh, this strange thing that happened where Elon Musk, who essentially endorsed the idea that Jewish people are pushing white genocide, um, to then getting praised by the head of the Anti-Defamation League. How did that happen? What is going on there? Yeah, I, I would really like an answer to that as well. Um, you know, Elon made a decision to effectively uh, you know, I actually don't know how, uh, if this is toothless or not, but he said that words like decolonization are no longer allowed on the platform, which was uh, applauded by Jonathan Greenblatt. But this happened two days after he agreed with the guy who was trying to spell out how Hitler was right on his on Twitter. Um, so I, I don't really understand this. There is a much larger question that I would love to ask Jonathan Greenblatt. I would love somebody at our network to ask Jonathan Greenblatt. Um, because I have not heard a reasonable explanation for this. The ADL, by the way, has some outstanding researchers, really good researchers in this space. And I'm sure they don't know what to do because um, people like Chaya Rachik, the libs of TikTok woman, um, she had a whole basic document uh, worked up about her from the ADL about the extremism of that organization, of that group. And that was just pulled down randomly. They say it's on hold now. There's something going on with the ADL with, with Jonathan Greenblatt and being afraid of pressure from the far right. And I don't know what it is, but I would love to, uh, I would love to hear some answers. Oh, well, we, we may want to follow up on that. Um, very interesting questions. Uh, Angelo Carasoni, Ben Collins, thank you. We'd love some follow-up on, on all of these issues. So thank you all both very much. Coming up, abortion rights groups race to get pro-choice measures on the ballot ahead of the 2024 election as the new Republican Speaker of the House compares abortion to the Holocaust. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Abortion rights advocates have an unbroken winning streak with ballot measures since Roe v. Wade was overturned last year. Now, advocates are racing to put the issue of abortion directly to voters in more states, with efforts in at least nine states to put abortion rights measures on the ballot in 2024. It couldn't come at a more critical time, especially now that Christian nationalist and anti-abortion zealot Mike Johnson is Speaker of the House. We're learning more about his extreme views as yet another batch of old interviews has resurfaced, like this radio interview last year, a month before Roe was overturned. It is truly an American Holocaust. I mean, the reality is that Planned Parenthood and all these big, you know, big abortion, uh, they set up their clinics in inner cities. Um, they, They are you know, they, they regard these people as as easy prey. In another interview on the day Roe versus Wade was overturned, Johnson was asked about Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas's concurrence. You'll remember Thomas suggested that the court should reconsider other decisions like Griswold, Lawrence and Obergefell, 
also known as ensuring access to contraception, the freedom to be in same-sex relationships, and legalized same-sex marriage. I thought it was interesting, the words of Justice Thomas, as he sort of looked forward to to what this could mean for other big culture war issues in this country. Well, that's right. You know, we've been sort of um, working against these activist courts for years, and there's been some really bad law made. They've made a mess of our jurisprudence in this country for the last, you know, several decades. And, and maybe some of that needs to be cleaned up. And what, what Justice Thomas is calling for is not radical. In fact, it's the opposite of that. You know, we finally have a majority of originalists on the court. Wow. Joining me now is Michelle Goldberg, opinion columnist for The New York Times and MSNBC political analyst. Not radical at all, says uh, Mike Johnson, of the idea of eliminating the right, not just to same-sex marriage, but to make it possible for same-sex relationships to be illegal again and to take away women's right to contraception. I just want to let you ruminate on that for a minute. I think it's sometimes, you know, because there's been so much progress in this country on gay rights, even though there's been certainly some backtracking lately, it's it's easy to forget that there was places that banned gay sex, you know, kind of within our lifetime, right? And so Obergefell, this decision that struck down Texas's anti-sodomy decision, or sorry, that struck down Texas's anti-sodomy law. Mm-hmm. Yes, I'm sorry, Lawrence. That that was 2005, I believe, right? And so I think that it's very clear that this is where Mike Johnson, whose language is very familiar, if you spent sort of any time in Christian nationalist circles, you know, it's very clear where they want to take this country. Yeah, or if you've read The Handmaid's Tale or seen these series, um, let me just put up the map of mm-hmm. of where uh, you know people who are, are are now fully aware, and I think people had gotten very complacent about the idea that the far right would eventually take away abortion rights. They said they were going to do it, and they did it. it. Took fifty years, but they did it. Here's the map of where states have banned or restricted abortion, um, and also where ballot measures in nine states are going to be launched in order to try to preserve them. The states that are launching these measures to try to preserve abortion rights are Nebraska, South Dakota, Missouri, Florida, Nevada, Arizona, Maryland, New York, and Colorado. And I want to point you to the ones that are important swing states, Florida, Nevada, and Arizona. Your thoughts on the fact Mm -hmm. that in Florida, the proposed state constitution now faces an attorney general who's trying to go to the Supreme Court in that state to throw that out um, and to basically negate that. This is Ashley Moody, the AG there. Five of the state's seven justices were appointed by six-week abortion ban DeSantis. Your thoughts? Well, this is what we've seen in other states as well. We've seen, you know, in Ohio, for example, Republicans did as everything that they could to both keep an abortion amendment off the ballot and then to change the language of that amendment to make it as confusing as possible. They, you know, tried to pass another amendment that would make it more difficult for this amendment to pass. None of it worked because the public support was so clear and decisive. But the pattern is that they will sort of throw every legal trickle trick that they that they can come up with to because they know they're going to pass. Not only right. are they going to pass, but they are probably going to bring a lot of voters to, to the polls who wouldn't come to the polls otherwise. I mean, we're going into this election, we demoralized Democratic electorate in a lot of in a lot of sectors. This is the thing that gets people excited. Something that I think is interesting is that you actually have 
Republicans in Iowa and Pennsylvania having to put anti-abortion ballot initiatives um, to the voters. And, you know, well, I certainly don't want to applaud that. There's part of me that that wishes them good luck, because I think that will be a real boon to Democratic turnout in those two states. Yeah, I think it's been proven that abortion is a, is a motivating issue, particularly for uh, younger voters and for women. Um, I, I want this is going to seem like a term, but it kind of isn't. Um, there's a conservative group. The Daily Beast has, has gotten their tax returns, and they are connected to this Project 2025. That's an attempt to stack the another Trump administration with far right wing extremists. They're now getting money. Apparently, this group, this nonprofit is called American Compass, is now getting money. Apparently, from some from Omidyar Network, the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation. These are normally organizations that donate to liberal causes. What do you make of the fact that it seems that maybe liberal groups are participating in what really is a plan to fashion a fascist government? I honestly have no idea. I mean, I can't imagine that the Hewlett Foundation in particular is kind of um, purposely putting its money to that purpose. You know, it has kind of made an affirmative decision to try to try to staff up a future Trump administration. Uh, um, You know, so I hope, obviously, that there will be some accountability and some sort of internal um, accounting and an explanation for why their money went to this. What I think is significant, though, is that these are the people who are going to be staffing a new Trump administration. You know, not the kind of so so called adults in the room, not the you know, not the sort of squishy moderates. Um, in as much as this is in the Republican Party, it's going to be people like them, right, true believers, people who are willing to both put aside their own risk of legal exposure, which attaches to basically everyone who works for Donald Trump. Um, you know, kind of the oh, their, the possibility of disgrace in the wider world to implement an agenda that they've been, you know, that, that they've had in mind for for decades. And that can really, you can really do a lot with the, you know, as, as Steve Bannon likes, likes to call it, the institutions of the, the administrative state. Yeah. And just look at Argentina. One of the things that that far right Trump uh, of Argentina is implementing is a national abortion ban. It's always a part of the plan to suppress the rights of women. Goes along with fascism. It's just part of the playbook. Michelle Goldberg, thank you very much. And up next, a new documentary explores a bold new theory on reverse migration as a means of putting more political power into the hands of black Americans. The subject and executive producer of that documentary, Charles Blow, joins me next. Between 1910 and 1970, six million black Americans left the Jim Crow South to escape segregation and racial violence and to pursue economic opportunities in northern and western cities in what we know now as the Great Migration. But in a new documentary, New York Times columnist and friend of the show, Charles Blow, is putting a theory of his to the test and challenging black Americans to move back to the southern states with the highest percentages of black residents in order to take control of Southern legislatures and gain greater political power, both in the region and in the country as a whole. To make this case, Charles talks to politicians, historians, community activists, and even members of his own family. See, me coming back is because I want to come back. I want to be the mayor. I want to do better. I'm going to be calling people that have left this town and being like, hey, I need your help. 
you gotta have people to drive a community to build up those schools, to bring businesses in town. It's just the economics. People are having to get away from here to build up that wealth so they can come back and make a difference. Uh, the South is somewhere we shunned in the past. Now there's just a lot of opportunities for folks that want to come back to the South, make a difference uh, as, as we're doing. And joining me now is Charles Blow, executive producer of the new documentary, South to Black Power. Uh, Charles, thank you for being here. This is fascinating because, you know, just anecdotally, I can tell you that is the way Florida initially became a swing state, right? All that we used to, uh, used to call Broward County the sixth borough because there were so many New Yorkers there. So many black New Yorkers lived there. And of course, Georgia was changed a lot by all the New Yorkers and other northerners who moved to Atlanta. Talk about this theory. I know you're one of them that moved to Atlanta why should black folk leave the North where they have the right to an abortion and, uh, you know, a lot more sort of, you know, freedom from book bans and things like that and move South? Well, uh, number one, I will say this, that at the end of the Civil War, three Southern states were majority black, uh, Louisiana, Mississippi and South Carolina, and three others were within uh, eight percentage points of being majority black. And because of that, because of their access to state power, in addition to what was happening in Washington, D.C., they had tremendous success in moving the country toward or at least those states towards equality for black people. Uh, I believe that state power is incredibly important to uh any sort of power in this country. There's a reason that this country is called the United States of America, because states have half the power. That said, I have a list of, of states. They're not, Florida's not one of them, by the way. Uh, uh, <laughs> that that and, and those states, I believe, are prime for this sort of transformation. And that includes Georgia. That's where I uh, moved to. And you see what happens in a state like that when black people start to get more and more power. In the last election, they were able to flip the state and they were able to, to elect a black senator and a Jewish senator. And that, that coalition of people who did that were led by black people. That is what power really looks like. For individuals, they'll have to make their own choice and own decisions about what freedom and safety and prosperity mean for them. And everything will go into that equation. There is no perfect place, no perfect state to be in in this country. Some of the most liberal states in this country are also some of, uh, some of the ones who per capita incarcerate a lot of black people, for instance, no one could argue that Vermont is not one of the most liberal states in America. And yet, when I was writing this book, I looked at uh, incarceration data for 2016. Vermont was the leading incarcerator per capita of black men. So I, you have to look at every one of the variables, throw out all of your kind of preconceived notions about what, what it, where is racism, where racism isn't, where is progress and where progress isn't, and look at what Black people's conditions are in those places and what your personal condition is. And maybe it makes sense for you. Maybe it doesn't. Most people did yeah. not migrate during the Great Migration. Yeah. I, you know, what's interesting is that, I mean, you know, Mississippi has like about 31, 32 percent African-Americans, but it's harder to for African-Americans to get their way, uh, you know, electorally than it is in Michigan. That's 12 percent black. So there is this this sort of disconnection between the number of black people, the percentages that are there in places like South Carolina, North Carolina, et cetera, and what they're able to accomplish in order for this to work. Wouldn't it be necessary for African-Americans who move south not to all move to Atlanta, but to move to rural Georgia, not to all move to Jackson, but to move to rural Mississippi? Because isn't it the case that a lot of the power is, is siphoned out of the big cities where black folk normally live and to rural places? So is your argument to not just move south, but to move out 
into rural America because it is the rural parts that generally hold the power. No, I, I, state I legislatures, I should say, Gen- state legislatures. Right. So I, my, my, I actually believe that people should move to the cities. So there are 1,200 majority black cities and towns in America. 90% of them are in the American South. Most of right. the capital cities of the, of the South are majority yes. black. The municipal yep. South, one could argue, is black. And therefore, you have a lot of kind of safety in numbers in those particular cities. And the first hurdle for me is the statewide races, not the ones that can be dealt with uh, by gerrymandering within the state. So I'm looking at governor seats. I'm looking at can you deliver a state? It doesn't matter where you live in a state or in a presidential election. Yeah. You vote that way, you deliver the state, regardless of where you are, rural or, or, or suburban or, or urban. In addition to that, every senator is a statewide race. It doesn't matter where you live in that in that state. If you yeah. if the state overall votes for that senator, the senator wins. If you can start yeah. to pick up governor seats, senator seats, and deliver states yeah. for presidential races. That's power. Yep. Wow. It is a fascinating, fascinating argument. Cannot uh, wait. Everyone should watch it. Charles Blow, thank you very much. This, uh, it's called South to Black Power. It premieres Tuesday, November 28th at 10 p.m. Eastern on HBO. Do not miss it. We'll be right back. Twenty twenty three has been playing with our minds and playing with our emotions, to say the least. We see you. Twenty twenty three. But there are still so many reasons to be thankful. For me personally, it is family. And this year, I am thankful for the big, giant, enormous family get-together gathering that we're going to be having tomorrow. Cannot wait to eat, drink, and be merry with the people I love. And here's wishing all of you a heaping helping of peace, love, joy, and the food that you love. Especially since so many in this deeply challenged world will be missing out on all of the above this Thanksgiving. And that is tonight's readout. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.